Welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. I'm Ed Max from Gotham Gazette. I'm Maria Dulles from the CBC. Thanks for joining us here today. We've got a great discussion ahead. If you've missed anything from us uh, so far this year or even last year, find our archives wherever you get your podcasts or on the Gotham Gazette website or CBC website. And make sure you're reaching out to us uh, wherever you'd like to reach out to us, but including on Twitter. Uh, I'm at TweetBenMax, and Maria's at Maria Doulis. Uh, and you can obviously find Gotham Gazette and CBCNY there as well. Uh, so to jump right into it, though, today, uh, coming off our discussions of the state budget, we're going to shift a little bit. Uh, today, we are joined by Anita Lairmont, the General Counsel and Chief Data Officer of the New York City Department of City Planning. I'm very excited for this conversation. I think uh, the Department of City Planning is fascinating. So welcome, Anita. Thanks for being here. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. And before we jump into the conversation, Maria will set the stage with today's data point. $307.45, the minimum per square foot price for selling air rights in East Midtown. Air rights are the untapped potential to build a taller building where a structure does not meet maximum allowable height. In August 2018, the New York City Council approved a rezoning of 78 blocks in East Midtown to allow for taller office buildings. Developers can now add density to their projects by buying air rights from a landmark building within this 78-block district or by contributing directly to a public improvement fund. Previously, landmarks were allowed to sell air rights to neighboring buildings. Now those rights can be transferred anywhere within the district. 20% of the sales price of the air rights, or a minimum of $61.49 per square foot, will be transferred to the city for the fund, which has been seeded with $50 million in in city cash as well. Disbursements from the fund are governed by a 13-member body appointed by city officials. Here to discuss this and other developments, all puns intended, in the city is Anita Lermont. Hey, Anita, it's great to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So we have a organizing point there. We have a lot to discuss with you, your work at city planning. Um, But first, you know, I gave your title, Mm -hmm. but if you could just describe your job a little bit, what is it, what is it that you really are in charge of and you you really do uh, so that people, uh, including those, you know, in this room that don't really know the day to day uh, can get a feel for what it is that you do. So as the general counsel, which I have two roles, but I'll talk about being the general counsel first, I'm responsible for ensuring that what we do complies with law, first and foremost. But secondly, that we have a zoning resolution that is clear and rational and allows the public to understand what it is that they can do in the city in terms of our zoning regulations. And uh, the role has been very interesting because when we came in uh, with this administration, our first big task was to establish mandatory inclusionary housing, which was a brand new uh, approach to uh, assuring that development included affordable housing. And we thought very carefully and long and hard about the legal constraints of that because you are requiring people to do something that heretofore they could do voluntarily, but they weren't required to do in certain instances. And so we had to ensure that it was legally supportable because we were afraid that we would you know, possibly be challenged. So we, we worked on efforts like that and another parallel effort, which was a zoning for uh, quality and affordability, which was a very micro look at our zoning resolution to ensure that our regulations allowed people to fully reuse the 
floor area that they were allowed to build. And so we did those two things and since have been focused on a host of private applications and um, city initiatives where we've done rezonings, where we've applied, you know, mandatory inclusionary housing and um, just really proceeded to try to address some of the issues that we thought were important. And in that regard, we took a look back at the work that had been done at the end of the Bloomberg administration to try to rezone um, Great East Midtown, which was an effort that failed uh, at that time for a host of reasons. But we thought that given the fact that Great East Midtown is really one of the city's premier business districts and that it, we were committed to ensuring the city's uh, uh, maintaining its place as a uh, important world-class city for business that we needed to do something there. So, so that's when we um, pursued that effort. The other part of my job uh, with the, the data is that I oversee our technical divisions. We have a technical review division that looks at drawings and other things that people um, submit to us to take their projects through uh, the public review process and our very important environmental uh, review division, which is responsible for ensuring that we um, comply with uh, the city and state environmental regulations and look at the environmental impacts of work that we do. So that's that's really what I've been up to. Yeah, and, and you know, a lot of times when I am talking with people who are not that familiar with city government, we talk about zoning. We're talking about land use, yes. like what is allowed to be done to land in the city, right. how it changes, what is okay to go where, right. how tall it's allowed to be, how wide, <laughs> all all those things about buildings, but not just buildings, right? right. Schools and right. parks and all those things and how land in the city is used. Mm-hmm. And you're basically right there at the, mm-hmm. at the front lines and at the top of the, the pyramid there in terms of figuring out how land in the city is going to be used. And mm-hmm. you obviously hit on the East Midtown, which is much more commercial, but yes. um, many of these other projects mm-hmm. are residential, mm-hmm. neighborhood-wide, mm-hmm. Um, so really uh, interesting interesting work. Yeah, I mean, zoning is such an important tool for city government in terms of fostering the economy, thinking about how you build community, thinking about how the city is, is shaped very literally and functions. Um, so you mentioned already many things that have been done, especially on the housing front, East Midtown, on some of the commercial space. I mean, what does DCP see both as its, the guiding principles of its strategy, but also the hallmark initiatives? Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think on the, the guiding sort of principles of our strategy, in this administration, the sort of bedrock principle is equity. There's a very pervasive equity agenda, and we try to keep that agenda in mind in terms of our work. And how that translates in terms of what we do is that we try to ensure a host of things, but we try to ensure that the city is a place that our actions don't make less affordable for people to live here. Um, And on the other end of that, that we try where we can to provide for affordable housing. Um, So in, in that regard, you know, some of the things that we look at are where there are opportunities to allow for more density in the city because of the fact that we are very well aware that this is a very popular city it has a lot of in-migration, and 
when people want to live somewhere, it puts pressure on the house cost of housing and the availability of housing. And so we, in our neighborhood rezonings, are really pursuing an effort to find locations for additional housing units in the city. That said, we are very mindful that neighborhoods need to be places that people want to live. And so they need to have the infrastructure and the amenities that are required to make living in a neighborhood attractive. And so now when we do neighborhood rezonings, we do it in a very holistic way where we look at not only what is the appropriate additional density that we could provide here, but what is the, um, what are the identified infrastructure needs in this community? We, we do that. Some, some work is done just by us internally, knowing what people need in terms of additional sewers and, and other things. But we also get feedback from community members about what things they need. For example, it's very frequently true that people feel a need for more open space. And so we try to provide for those kinds of things while we are doing our planning work for, for neighborhoods. Um, and so that's, that's part of what we do on that front. We simultaneously are looking to make the city a place that is attractive for business to, um, to be here. And what we have realized is that a lot of the city's business office stock is really old. So we all know that we have Hudson Yards, which is a whole new area of the city and is very attractive. But but we, we have realized that you can't just rely on Hudson Yards to be the only place for business. And so, for example, in Greater East Midtown, we said that we needed to do something to refurbish the building stock there. Uh, we realized that downtown Manhattan has a lot of building stock that is in many ways similar to Greater East Midtown, but is going through its own transition really over the last 10 or 15 years has become a much more residential um, neighborhood. But we also see commercial development opportunity in downtown Brooklyn. And so we are thinking about what we can do to foster that and, and make that a vibrant uh, commercial community as well. Let me, if you don't mm, mind, interrupt absolutely. you there. So what is it that you can do to do that? What is it that um, the city and, and especially the Department of City Planning can do to improve mm -hmm. uh, that antiquated office space. What are those tools? So in regards to Greater East Midtown, the tools really have to do with allowing sufficiently greater density that would incentivize somebody to take a building that is fully occupied and to, you know, depopulate it and then build a new building. So you, you can't expect anyone to say that they're going to do that if they can't build any more than they have today just because of the economics of building. So that's, that's one of the things. But a, a very significant and maybe equally important thing is to address the infrastructure deficits surrounding a commercial area. Uh, so in Greater East Midtown, you know, we realized that to just say we were going to bring more people there would be something that would not be well received and would be really ill advised. Yes. yes. So we we realized that we had to come up with a plan for how to accommodate significant additional numbers of people 
being in the neighborhood every day, coming to the neighborhood, traveling through the neighborhood um, from an infrastructure perspective. And so in our work, we work with the MTA and others, uh, DOT on surface um, issues to try to address and uh, those issues and figure out how those things can be funded. Um, in downtown Brooklyn, which we are just beginning to look at, you know, some of the things that we're thinking about are how do we incentivize commercial development over residential development? Because from an economic perspective, historically, residential development is is easier for people because, you know, you have people, there are lots of people who pay a lot of money to live in the city. And so we look at what we might be able to do there and to encourage that by having zoning structures that favor commercial development over mm-hmm. residential development. But we're just starting to think about that now. So I feel like there's there's so much you've already touched on that's fascinating and has so many different avenues for discussion here. I mean, to stick to East Midtown a little bit, because I think this was um, a, a significant accomplishment in getting this done and getting the city council to go along with the deal that had actually previously failed for many of the concerns that, that you've um, already expressed, particularly um, the concern that you bring more people into an area and the infrastructure is not there to support it. Um, and so... The, the the deal was really structured about, you know, this concept of air rights, right? So explain that a little bit more and explain why it was important to set a floor rather than just let the market do what it would with the sale of air rights in this area. So, you know, um, one of the challenges that historically has come with air rights is that we have a significant number of uh, very significant landmarks uh, in the city, and particularly in Greater East Midtown, including St. Patrick's Cathedral, um, Grand Central Terminal itself, um, and, and a number of other institutions that have had the ability to use a landmark transfer mechanism that's existed in zoning now for a long time, um, but haven't really used it. And the reason, there are many reasons they haven't used it, but one big reason is that they were constrained in where they could sell their air rights to. So they had to be very um, close to the landmark in order to um, be able to offload their um air rights, if you were doing a a new development, you could buy from a landmark that was adjacent or across the street from you. And we saw that that was yielding very few transactions. And, you know, the city has a very um, significant commitment to these landmarks in that they are, you know, iconic, and we want them to be able to be restored in a way that is consistent with their landmark designation. But they they all have challenges in that regard. And one of the ways, one of the significant ways they can do that is if they can sell their air rights. So while we were thinking about how we could, you know, upzone an area to provide more density, we were also thinking about these landmarks and how we might be able to assist in their becoming, you know, um, the best that they could be as part of this overall district-wide improvement. And so we realized that we should develop a system that allowed for a transfer of air rights in a much broader area than simply right across the street. 
because, um, you know, when you look at any of these particular landmarks and you think about the old rules of adjacency, you saw that they had very few opportunities. But if you take it through this whole Midtown District, you saw that over time there probably would be a way for them to sell those air rights um, to, to many more potential developments. So that was the first thing that we did. And what we wanted to ensure was that we could say to the public that we had a degree of certainty as to the ability to provide these infrastructure improvements. And we felt really strongly that we needed to have a floor price for that because we needed to ensure that there would at least be a base amount that we would have in this fund to do those improvements. Uh, you know, we are aware of the fact, and we talked to the council about this when we were doing this, that there are ways that people can do transactions very legally that don't necessarily fully reflect the fair market value. So, for example, a landmark could become a joint venturer with a developer in a new office building, and they might not have to sell their air rights for the fair market value, but the fact they did would just be participating with that owner. And so we really wanted to ensure that the city in those kinds of transactions got at least a base minimum amount. When we were doing this, there were people who strenuously argued against it, saying that they thought that the air rights price floor that we were putting in was going to be too high and would have a very significant chilling effect on landmarks selling their TDRs. But, I mean, we didn't pick a number out of whole cloth. We, we did appraisals, and we determined that this was a fair, really modest low floor. And so what we've seen already is that there are transactions that are churning that are going to at least meet this price, and we actually think we'll sell for more. Because the landmarks have a very significant pent-up demand, and they really want to be able to get money to do some of these improvements. So we don't think that we were wrong in the way that we strategized about doing this. So one thing I want to observe, I very much like the, the notion that, you know, you um, you think about not only increasing the density and, and spurring the development, but what the infrastructure is that's required to support that, right? Both on this commercial side and East Midtown, but also on the housing side mm -hmm. by, by setting aside money in the capital plan mm -hmm. to say, okay, and as we upzone and bring people here, we're going to think about what's needed for sewers and mm -hmm. roads and everything else. Um, and I just want to observe that this is a, a form of value capture mm -hmm. that is different than some of the other things we've talked about in this program and, and kind of panned. Um, and that it's, you know, the benefits are linked. The city has, you know, um, a direct role and a voice. Um, and it's, it's clearly linked together in this very logical way um, where both the private sector, the infrastructure, and the city, well, all three can benefit. So, so you mentioned that there's already some transactions on the move. So um, the, the city feels good that the the sort of win-win-win projected is proceeding as as planned. Is the um, is the governing body of the fund that's all up and running and and things are moving yes. as expected? The the governing body for the public road improvement fund has actually been fully constituted and has met. Um, and so uh, they're working towards the uh, public realm improvements that would be uh, uh, really not the sort of MTA below grade improvements, but the um, 
sort of pedestrian rail transit improvements, uh, they're, they're working to identify that. So yeah, so we actually had no expectation that we would be talking about any developments in Greater East Midtown this soon after the uh, rezoning was done, but we are very happy that that is uh, proceeding. And so we want to get into, I don't, did you have anything else in this I just Midtown? want to say, you know, to date, or what, can we talk about revenues in the fund? City already put some money to get it started. Has anything else been generated? Yeah. No, nothing else has been generated. Okay. The, the money that the city put in to jumpstart it was really based on our belief that it would be several years before there would be any action where there would be any revenue. But we now have, you know, discussion about several transactions. So I, I would anticipate that in the next couple of years, there will be significant, significant money placed in the fund. And what mm -hmm. will be the accountability for that fund? How does one track what they're spending money so on? So the body has reporting requirements okay, that good. will make it transparent. And okay. we also thought through how to make sure that the public could be uh, assured that those monies were properly used. Mm -hmm. So we want to definitely get to a few of the um, neighborhood rezonings. You mm -hmm. touched on that. We obviously have already discussed how East Midtown is different, being more commercially focused. Um, but before we, we get to that, um, I want to make one note and then ask a different question. Mm -hmm. one, one note for listeners is, you know, we're not going to get into the nitty-gritty of ULERP here, but that's something important to sort of know about uh, as you're listening to this and you're not that familiar with that uh, land use review process. That's something good to sort of look up and, and familiarize yourself with. I think a lot of listeners to this podcast are fairly familiar with ULERP, but in case not, that's a key component of what you're talking about, mm -hmm. about public review and input from stakeholders and community boards and uh, the city council, obviously, and, and others. Um, before we, we talk a little bit more about the neighborhood rezonings, I think this question ties in. There's no city plan, right? Mm -hmm. There's no, you know, we, we had a, did an episode uh, with the, someone from the Regional Plan mm -hmm. Association, right? They just put out their fourth plan, mega plan for the tri-state area. You know, that, that's, that is big, big stuff. But I've also heard questions and, and, you know, criticism that, well, where's the city's plan? Why doesn't the city have a sort of a quote-unquote master plan? Um, what's, what's your perspective on that? Well, firstly, I'd say that, you know, we, we, are, we are charged by state law that to have a, we must have a well-considered land use plan. And what we have maintained historically is that the city zoning framework at any given time is the city's well-considered plan. Um, you know, this is such a dynamic city in terms of where people live, where they work. Uh, we actually do not believe that it would actually be productive to try to sit down and develop a plan because that dynamism really leads, you know, to a need to be nimble and responsive in terms of things. And so we, you know, we, we have ideas about what we think we should be doing as we move forward, but we also have learned over time that one has to rethink things because where one thinks population is really want, going to want to be at any given time may in five years prove to be something different. If, for example, the city were to get Amazon, 
anything that we had been thinking previously about what would be appropriate in various places might be proven completely wrong. So we, we really have to be able to reflect on various trends and move in directions, but not really with the idea of a sort of holistic plan that we just pursue. The other thing is that our process is very, you mentioned ULERP, is a ultimately political, you know, process. And we have, I think, at city planning, some of the smartest people that work in city government. Um, but, you know, we don't have the ability to implement just what we think is appropriate. You know, there are pushes and pulls and there are other considerations that go into what ultimately is the land use that is New York City's, uh, you know, zoning resolution. So uh, we do the best that we can, but and, and we do think strategically long term, but to say we would just develop a plan is not something that I think is in the cards. Interesting. Yeah. And when you see something like what the Regional Plan Association puts out, what do you think of that? What do you make of that? Is that it's it's great for organizations like that to think big and do yes. these things and it, and it sort of gets the wheels churning mm-hmm. but it's it is as you're sort of indicating for people really doing the city work not realistic or I don't want to well, put words in your say, mouth but I wouldn't say it's not realistic I think those kinds of things are very aspirational and they have um, the luxury of not having to be uh, responsive to the real politic, you know, that, that we live within. And so... They don't have to consult the community. No, members. they definitely don't. <laughs> I mean, and the mayor only has responsibility for the city of New York. Sure. That's right? exactly he can, right. He, he can, can say, advocate in favor of regional housing solutions and yes. these things that, yes, people like us can look at and say, this is absolutely what makes sense for our metro region to grow, but the mayor right. can only control the city of New York. Um, That's right. And, you know, I would I would say that we welcome those kind of sort of thought exercises that that people do. And I think they give us food for thought. We just know that, you know, we have to live in a a more constrained uh, universe, unfortunately. So, you know, the one thing I will say on that is historically, and I think Carl Weisbrod, the former city Mm -hmm. planning commissioner, talked about this when he first started, which was city planning used to take a much stronger role in developing the city's 10-year capital plan. Yes. And that, you know, there was a sort of better process in the sense that city planning would lay out the strategy and have the master plan and the commitments would flow around that. And Mm -hmm. we've gotten away from that, you know. Um, And I think the process and the city's capital planning could benefit from having that, you know, a stronger city planning input into how the 10-year capital strategy is formed. Mm -hmm. I I think we, we certainly heartily agree with that. And we think that we've made some inroads in sort of integrating uh, capital planning with our work by the way we do our neighborhood planning now where we try to look at what the capital needs are for, for areas that we're working in. So speaking of that neighborhood work, let's, let's spend a few minutes there. Um, we are in our maybe last five minutes here with uh, Anita Lairmont, the general counsel and chief data officer at the Department of City Planning. Uh, and again, thank you for being here. Um, so, you know, we spoke, you spoke at the top of the show about the mandatory inclusionary housing and the neighborhoods. There have been four that have already been rezoned. Um, you know, start at the beginning. How did the administration, what was the analytic, what were the analytics that led the administration to identify these as the neighborhoods to upzone? What were the criteria? 
And then, you know, it hasn't sort of been smooth sailing. As we said, there are a lot of actors in this process. You got to, you know, build the consensus to get the approval. What have been the lessons learned in, you know, in the first half that will inform what happens next? Hmm. That's interesting. So uh, we can I'm, repeat the second question. I like to back We're fans of multi-part questions <laughs> that um, you don't know where to start. But okay, cut, so but. W- you know when we started this effort, the identification of the initial neighborhoods was really something that was a collaborative process between the city and. Uh, members of the city council and uh, neighborhoods themselves in terms of neighborhoods raising their hands and saying, we would welcome a, a rezoning because they thought there were opportunities in that. You know, we looked more analytically at places that we thought we could uh, bring greater density that were close to transit and other things where it would make it possible for um one to bring large numbers, maybe large numbers of additional uh, residents uh, to help fulfill the mayor's commitment to providing uh, housing units. So it was, you know, it was really a very much a two-way street. And the the uh, neighborhoods that we have rezoned have really been neighborhoods where there's been participation um, and buy-in from the electeds that represent the areas, as well as community organizations. So uh, East New York, which was the first neighborhood that we did, was a neighborhood that city planning had been working in previously and that the community had very much wanted us to do something in. And so that's really how we started. Uh, In terms of lessons learned from, from these efforts, I think one of the things that we really did sort of not fully anticipate was the degree of desire for housing units at a greater level of city subsidy than we had planned for. You know, um, the city has a desire to create as many units, affordable units, as possible. the cost of subsidizing those units is a very significant hit on the city budget. And so we really conceive mandatory inclusionary housing to be a way to sort of like balance some of that with the private sector, you know, playing a role by providing some of these units in places where that they could cross subsidize. Uh, but that's where the private developers yeah. get to build more. Yes but have to set aside yes. a certain percentage as affordable, and yes. basically their profits are then subsidizing the affordable units that's, as opposed to the city. That's correct. Mm-hmm. And we did economic analyses at that time to figure out what the balance you could strike there was in terms of uh, the percentages that you could ask people to subsidize. But what we've seen just repeatedly through our rezoning efforts is that neighborhoods demand deeper you know, um, subsidy because... 
they frequently talk about the um, income levels of those people living in the, the neighborhoods and say that they want deeper subsidies. So that, I think, has been a challenge for us. And the city has really met that challenge to a large degree by HPD providing signif significantly more subsidy uh, amounts than I think they in originally intended would be required in connection with the efforts that we undertook. Uh, the, other, the other thing we have run into are really fears of gentrification and displacement in neighborhoods. Uh, people who feel that our efforts are sort of hastening changes of their neighborhoods. And part of our challenge is trying to address those fears both in terms of the perception, because we actually don't believe that it's necessarily true that our efforts make those changes, but um, to try to make people understand that if we take no action, those, those sort of principles are at play in almost every neighborhood in the city, and at least with our frameworks, we are ensuring a permanent percentage of the units built to be affordable in the long run. And that if we do nothing, then the neighborhood may just change and become a fully market rate neighborhood. So so we didn't we thought that our challenges would be that people would resist mandatory inclusionary housing because we were requiring owners to do something. We've never been challenged on on that. And so I think we sort of misperceived what the pitfalls of what we were doing would be. Yeah, I mean, it, it does seem like, and who it, it is often hard to say, there's often this balance between the loudest voices and the number of people behind them. And it's, it is hard to say often, um, you know, the outcry for the really deeply affordable units that has led, as you said, to HPD changing some things. The mayor, obviously, mm -hmm. that came, you know, from the, from the top down as well, with the mayor shifting around some money to, to adjust the plan a bit. To, to go to lower affordabilities, um, you know, it's it's not always clear, but, it, you know, how many people are really crying out for these, but that there are advocacy groups that have made it a real focus. But that being said, it's very clear that there is a desire around the city for these, for deeply affordable subsidized housing because, um, you know, we obviously are seeing many people who are lose their housing. You city-led rezonings are not, right? Mm -hmm. And there is, there is just this deep, deep need for deep, deep uh, mm -hmm. affordable housing. Right. I mean, a, a large share of the population is rent burdened. That's mm -hmm. not a surprise mm -hmm. to anyone. Mm -hmm. You know, the greatest share of the rent, very, very rent burdened are very mm -hmm. low income. Absolutely. So there, there is, you know, sort of the data behind mm -hmm. that. But of course, the tension, the city can't do everything, right? right? And the tension is the deeper you go on subsidizing the affordability, the less units, units you can bring online. Absolutely. And given the that housing shortage, I mean... You know, you, that's sort of a decision to make, mm -hmm. but you know, pushing towards getting as many units in the supply chain as as possible mm -hmm. is is important too. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what I find interesting is one of the the zonings that I didn't go through was Flushing West, mm -hmm. which is very close to where I live, and so I, I was reading about it, and there was the sense of, well, we don't want you to do this rezoning. But we still want you to come here. We want the city to focus on this area and come up with an alternative investment plan and, you know, let's talk. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I found that very ironic because there's often this sort of reactive, um, you know, impulse to say, oh, no, no, we don't want that, but we want something. Right, right. We don't know what the something necessarily <laughs> is, but we think there should be, you know, infrastructure improvements, um, but not, not like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
Well, I mean, I think, and I think that is something you referenced and is a key piece of this discussion, which is that these plans are focused on adding housing density, but they're also neighborhood improvement plans, mm-hmm. right? And so I think what Maria is getting at is sometimes people say, well, we don't want the density, <laughs> it's just right. but we want the improvements, right. yeah. Right. Um, so in our last uh, two minutes here, what's next? So Jerome Avenue corridor rezoning just went through, so that sort of brings the neighborhood list to East New York, as you mentioned, East Harlem, there was downtown Far Rockaway, now we've got the Jerome Ave corridor. What's what's coming through next, do you think? Well, you know, we're still working with neighborhoods. Uh, you know, we're, we're looking at to do a rezoning in Gowanus in, in Brooklyn, which we've worked on for quite some time with uh, Brad Lander, the councilman uh, from that neighborhood. And uh, we will be, uh, I think, becoming more public and more active with this at, in, from this year to next year. Um, and, and we are excited about that because it's a somewhat unique circumstance in that there is uh, a very significant commercial component to Gowanus that makes it a little unique in terms of the neighborhood rezonings um, that we have uh, done. Um, and, you know, we're doing a lot of other work. One of the things that uh, the city uh, is committed to right now is um, uh, uh, sort of uh, workforce planning, and we are working on a broad zoning initiative that we are calling Zoning for Economic Development, which is really to um, identify impediments in zoning that that need to be changed and additional things that we might do to make it easier for um, development to occur throughout the city. So in that regard, one example would be we have to really look at the city's antiquated parking requirements in many districts, which really disincentivize the development of uh, businesses, uh, commercial uh, offices, and other types of businesses because they they carry a very heavy sort of uh, requirement in terms of uh, the number of parking spaces uh, that is really based on very outdated modes of transportation. Sure. So, so that's the sort of thing that we also will be working on, and we're also going to um, be working on revitalizing the city's uh, flood text and uh, the work that we, the resiliency work that was done really on an emergency basis post Sandy, but we're going to be codifying that into uh, zoning regulations uh, shortly. So we're really very busy. Mm, Sounds like it. Uh, Yeah, well, I feel like the city could use a good parking conversation, generally speaking. (laughs) No, really. And I think, you know, when there's a lot of the transit conversations happening, you know, the parking issues are uh, front and center there, too. So we'll save that for another podcast, maybe. (laughs) That's actually a pretty good idea, I think, for a a show. I think we'll leave it there. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us. It's uh, really been great to have you here. And uh, we'll be watching as you move into those next projects. Thank Thank you. you for having me. It was fun. Bye.